Can learning transform your life? This is Impact Learning with Maria Zinedou, a podcast where you will hear personal stories about how we learn, work, and live in the connection economy. Together with her guests, she will teach you to design your learning journey and create the life you want. On today's episode... So I think when you're doing a class for students, you go, what what information did they need to know? And then we design what we're going to teach around that. Whereas the question that I ask is, what do they need to be able to do in the world? And then how do we structure from that place? How do we get them to do that thing so that they have a practice of it? And then how do we support them with learning content so that they do that thing well or to the best of their ability? Hey, it's Maria, and you are listening to Impact Learning. My guest today is a learning scientist and a researcher focused on the design and development of education technology to support experiential learning. Her journey into learning science and education technology did not follow a traditional path. She traversed outdoor education in China, humanitarian aid and development in Tanzania, and higher education lecturing in Australia. Throughout her travels, she realized that she was afforded these opportunities because of her access to quality education. She knew that the next step in her journey was to use technology to increase access to quality education for everyone. She has been designing and delivering experiential learning programs since 2002 within higher education institutions from both the faculty and program manager perspective. A shift in her focus in 2014 led to her current role as a learning scientist and education technology researcher focused on the use of machine learning and real-time learning analytics to support experiential learning design and delivery. I'm thrilled to introduce you to my guest Nikki James, who is a learning scientist at Practera, an experiential learning platform designed to help educators, employers and students achieve better outcomes from experiential learning collaborations. Their programs aim to help students develop 21st century skills and prepare them for the fourth industrial revolution. You can find more about Nikki and her work at Practera.com P-R-A-C-T-E-R-A dot com Let's dive right in. Hello Nikki, welcome to Impact Learning. Thank you, it's great to be here. So you and I don't know each other well, so I want to start with your childhood. What is something that you learned? as a kid that you are very proud of? Um, when I was a child, I actually studied ballet. So I, for 16 years, I trained as a ballerina uh, and I'm very proud of, of that. And I think it's had a lot of an impact on my life. How old were you when you started practicing uh, to become a ballerina? I was three. And who, what triggered that? I'm sure it was not you or maybe 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 it was you. So how how did this start? Um I actually I I don't know I don't know how it started the first time when I was 3. I would probably say that my my mom would have taken me, but I was hooked. I loved it. What is that you loved about it? I I think I loved the combination of creativity there's a creative element to dance, but it's so technical as well. So it, it is science and art coming together. And I just love working really hard to make something look effortless and to tell a story. Beautiful. What was uh, the thinking around learning and education in your family as you were growing up? When I was growing up, uh, education wasn't something that my parents had access to. Uh, So I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure that both my my parents didn't finish high school. 
they went to grade 10 and then got jobs. My dad was actually studying at community college when my brother and I were very young. Uh, so he would go to work all day and then study at night. And education was always really important to him. And even though he hadn't had access to higher education, it, it was not really an option that we weren't going, which was pretty incredible considering that he hadn't had access to that himself. He did everything within his power to make sure that we knew that that was where we were headed. So when you and your brother were studying, that he was also uh, doing his homework. Uh, so when I was one, two and three years old, he was still studying. Um, so by the time I went to school, he was finished, but he was still very, uh, he advocated education. I wasn't allowed to go to dance class if I hadn't done my homework. Uh, yes, yeah, so there was, a, if I was sick at school that day, I wasn't allowed to not go to school, but go to dance um, and things like that. So it was a priority. So... As a student, uh, what did you want to do when you grow up? I always want, it's really interesting. I, I don't have a memory of growing up, when I was growing up, going really clearly what I, like a job. But I knew that I always wanted to help people. So I, and I started that at a very young age. So when I was in high school, I taught the elementary school kids dance and choreographed routines for the after-school dance program and was always involved in community things. I think when I, when I was seven, I decided I wanted to buy presents for kids that didn't get Christmas presents. And it wasn't instigated by anybody. Like people were very, <laughs> my parents were always surprised at where things came from for like what I came up with. Um, but, yeah, I just had this genuine desire to do what I could to help people. What were you getting back? What were you feeling? I think it made me feel really happy uh, to know that, you know, I remember, I think, again, when I was seven, I had decided that I wanted to save my pocket money and buy presents for kids that didn't have access. And I remember uh, going to the store with my mom and really being intentional with what I was buying. And there was something that she said, oh, what about this? And I remember saying, well, no, I can't buy that because what if they can't afford the batteries? You know, so even at that really young age, I was really thinking about being really intentional with my generosity and, and with the way that I went about helping people. Yeah, it just always made me feel really happy and it made me feel like I was living on purpose. Okay. And for your bachelor's degree, you studied health science. Yes. Are this, uh, is this related in any way or shape with, uh, I guess, your desire to help others? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was in grade 11 at school, I actually came on exchange to the USA. So I'm, I'm from Australia. Uh, and so I came as an exchange student to the USA and I was, the idea was I would do a year here and then I would go back to Australia and redo grade 11 and grade 12 and do all my exams. But midway through the year here, we actually worked out that I could graduate here and apply to Australian university instead of going back to school. So at the time, the internet really wasn't a big thing. Uh, this was in 1999. So the way that the educate, you selected university in Australia is that you got a big book of all the different degrees and all the different universities that were available. You would read through that and you would make a choice, your choices. So and you would order them one through nine. And so I found out midway through my year here in the US that I wanted, to, I was able to go straight to university. So it was a decision I had never really thought about before because it was still two years away. But then all of a sudden it became something that I needed to do immediately. And I didn't know a lot about what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't want to sit behind a desk all day and I wanted to help people. And so my mom actually went through the guide and because it was too expensive to mail the whole thing over, 
she tore out the things that she thought I might be interested in and mailed just those pages. So I made that choice based on those pages. So my first choice was um, physiotherapy, physical therapy. Uh, and my second choice was the health science. Um, and that's what I got into. So I started studying that uh, three months after I got back to Australia. Did you get a job after the university or did you continue to study? No, I got a job. So uh, my fir very first job was in outdoor education. So I was teaching, <laughs> funnily enough. Uh, and I was, I was taking kids to do rock climbing, canoeing, kayaking, basically all the adventure activities uh, as part of peer support training type programs, leadership programs. Um, it's a fairly common thing to go to a camp uh, as, as part of your schooling in Australia. And so a lot of kids during the school year would come for a week and we would, I was a guide. Very nice. And how did this bring you later to, I guess, youth volunteering and then later on social entrepreneurship? I'm trying to catch up with everything <laughs> you are doing here, but okay. But how does this bring, bring you now to youth volunteering first? After I, I did the camp, I didn't do the camp for a huge amount of time. The second job that I got was in a gym and I was an exercise physiologist. And so my role was to train people in the gym that were from a special population group. So if they were pregnant or if they had a medical or a health problem or whatever, so someone that needed that extra care with their fitness, uh, that was my role. And I was doing that and then a friend of mine was working in a charity. Uh, it was a residential care program for girls that were recovering from eating disorders, self-harm uh, and depression and other mental health challenges. And they asked me to be involved in supporting the girls with healthy fitness kind of perspectives Uh, so I ended up working in that program, supporting girls that were kind of in recovery from eating disorders and other challenges. And then from there, I got a full-time job in, as the youth manager for a larger charity in, in Australia. Okay. And uh, how was this experience for you and what kind of skills did you build there with the youth volunteering as a program manager? Um, the, the biggest skill I built uh, was I took the role not realizing that there was public speaking involved. Uh, I, what I didn't know at the time that it wasn't just coordinating people, it was actually uh, teaching about social justice in schools. And so my, I think my third day in the job, I was out at a high school speaking to 160 grade 10 kids. <laughs> about social justice and how to we really need to get back and give back to our community and to be honest with you I did not like public speaking I did everything I could to avoid it up until that point I don't think I would have taken the job if I knew it was part of it and probably for about the first eight months I would be sick in the bathroom before yeah. I spoke. <laughs> How did you learn about social justice or did you speak from the heart? I, I spoke from the heart. That was my <laughs> only option. I, I learned on the go. Uh, I knew, I guess, my experience engaging with a, enough charities and volunteer organisations, I knew a bit about it uh, and... I was very much talking about the actual programs, a lot more about the programs that the, you know, the, the charity that I worked for had and the volunteering opportunities available. So it was very operational. But I do remember one experience, it was probably about a year in, that up until that point I had been doing workshops. So it was they'd have a conference and I would do one workshop as a part of the conference. Uh, but I, came, I arrived at this, this conference at a, an all-girls school in Sydney in Australia and I wasn't one of the workshop presenters. I was the keynote, but they hadn't clarified that with me. Um, so I wrote my keynote, my first ever keynote speech uh, while waiting to be introduced. Um, 
it was but it, it was the only option was to speak from the heart and honestly that was the day I got over my fear of public speaking because I just had to go for it okay so now do you what's now your relationship with public speaking do you enjoy it I do I really like I really like telling my story I really love teaching so which is kind of different a little bit different to public speaking but I, I love communicating ideas and I love helping people understand kind of what I am doing and why and, and, and hopefully engaging them in the process because I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of power in the ability to communicate what it is you're working on and, and then inviting people to be a part of it. So after the youth volunteering uh, work, how did China and the social entrepreneurship <laughs> opportunity come about? <laughs> it's a really interesting story. So I was working, so when I was working in, uh, as a manager of the youth team, it was growing and I needed help. So I employed a guy named Pat and he was a surf lifesaver in Australia and he really wanted us to be able to take the kids that we were providing the services for to the beach But to do that, we both had to have a bronze medallion, which is basically a surf life-saving certification. So he convinced me to do my bronze medallion at his surf club. And so I spent six weeks. I, I'd done a bit of swimming, so it wasn't too much of a big deal. I'd grown up by the ocean. So uh, I did a six-week training program where I learned CPR. I learned all this stuff, thinking that this was just a work-related, like, I'm going to do this. And then whenever we go to the beach, we're good knowing Pat was going to be the one doing all the rescuing. What I didn't realize at the time is that I actually had to patrol with the, the Surf Life Saving Club on the weekends and that was what I was signing up for. <laughs> I was like, Pat, you tricked me. And he was like, yeah, I did. <laughs> You're in Patrol 5. And the captain of Patrol 5 was a guy named James and he ran a company in Australia but – He also had an outdoor education company in China. And right after the Sichuan earthquake, we were sitting on the beach one day and I asked him how, if everybody over there in his team was safe. And he said, yeah, but they're really wanting to give back. Like they're really wanting to do something to help the people that were affected by the earthquake. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. That's really exciting. And I think three months later, I asked him about it again. And he said, yeah, like they, they still really want to do it, but they have no idea what they're doing. Um, do, you, do you know anyone that would be interested in going and helping out? <laughs> and I, I gave him a list of three names of people that I knew that worked in development um, that would have the experience to do what he was asking. And he literally just, I think we were, it was a text exchange. He went, I meant you. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think it was not more than three or four months later I was in China for eight weeks basically starting having my initial experience working with the team there what did you know about uh, entrepreneurship and the skills that you needed for this job and how did you how did you learn how to do this job look I I genuinely didn't think I had any idea what I was doing And I think that that was how I was able to be successful because I was aware that I had no idea. I didn't know what the needs were in the local community. I didn't know the resources that I had available to me in the business, apart from like a percentage of the profit was going to be going to facilitating this. There was really no rules for what I was doing. It was that we wanted to give back. We wanted to invest in the community uh, that we were I guess, running a business on because we were taking kids out into the community and taking them rock climbing and all of that. Um, they were the only rules that I had and I had no experience doing this from scratch. So I did build things in the, in the, cha in the charity. So I started new programs and things like that, but I didn't really identify it as entrepreneurship. And so, yeah, I just very aware that I didn't know what I was doing so I would need to ask a lot of questions so I just went in saying that if if I asked good questions I would find out what the needs were uh, and and work out the best way to serve those needs with the resources that I did have.
What was the goal that you had to uh, achieve before you were, let's say, done with your work in China? Look, I think the original goal was to set up a charity arm of the business. That was the original goal. But the outcome actually was ingraining the volunteering opportunities within the existing offering of the business. So instead of having a business with a charity arm, kind of making the business do the good work and and it enabled the young people that were coming and being involved in all of the outdoor education programs who were running an opportunity to give back and experience the power of helping people. Mm-hmm. So you're now, you're in a new country, different country, and uh, you're doing quite uh, like different work. What did you learn about yourself that you didn't or you hadn't realized before? I think I realized that I was a lot stronger than I thought I was. I think that's the thing. I I had no idea. I was terrified, to be really honest. I was terrified. Uh, I didn't speak a word of Mandarin. I didn't know anybody that I was through. A, I knew people that knew people that would be in China with me, but I didn't directly know any anyone. And I was... I was going to be living and working in for the first time in a culture where I was the minority, the minority and I had no idea what that would be like. But yeah, I learned that I'm a lot stronger than I realized because I lived through the experience. I, I think I also learned, I learned a lot about, I guess, the implicit differences in the way that cultures work and to be accepting of that. And what comes after China? Do you go back to Australia? Yes. So after China, I went back to Australia and I started working at the University of New South Wales. And my whole job was to start new volunteering opportunities for students uh, that would help them develop their professional skills. Mm -hmm. What are the key skills that a student develops during a volunteering experience? I think... All of these skills that we now call 21st century skills, I think that's really what we were getting at. But I think for me, I really wanted all the programs that I started to give university students the opportunity to realize that they could use whatever skills they were learning to do good. So I didn't want them to just, the programs that we started to just be go play with kids on the weekend or go um, help out with something that's completely separated from your life. What we did was set up programs where they could use their engineering skills to do a project in like a humanitarian-based project. So I wanted them to go out into the world past university and believe that they could use the skills that they had acquired, not just to make money and earn a living, but to do good things in the world with those skills. Very nice. And you were teaching and you were designing and executing these programs for how many years overall? I was doing that in that university for two years. But then after that, I I moved out of a, a professional role where I was working on these programs to actually teaching. Um, so I it was it was doing very much the same thing, educating students, and I used that same thinking of how do we get them to know how, how to do good with the skills that we're developing in them. But I was I was in the academic seat and not in the um, co-curricular environment, which is what I was in beforehand. Okay, very good. So you, I can see how you are in like in different places or parts of the overall chain. But the learning uh, process and work, you're touching different uh, parts of it. Yes. So now what comes after that? And when do you join Practera? What came after teaching in universities was a trip to Tanzania, which is what led to Practera. So I decided to give up my 30th birthday to go to Tanzania and help start a social entrepreneur training program. So I had a friend called Richard who was working in Tanzania in a community center called KCC, 
Uh, and it was started by a group of young guys who really wanted to use their skills to give back to the kids in their community. So I basically didn't want any presents that year or anything like that. And I raised money to go to, to Tanzania for a month. And KCC had an acrobat training program. And I decided while I was there, I would bring out my ballerina skills again and do some acrobatic training with the acrobats. Uh, so I trained with the 12 year olds because <laughs> that was my skill level. But my two coaches, um, Abdul and uh, Uma, they were both in their early 20s. And Abdul was trying to finish sixth grade at school because he didn't have access to education or he had dropped out at a certain point and couldn't get back in. And one day I caught him trying to read an English math textbook from the 80s. He didn't speak English that well and I was pretty sure he couldn't read English that well. And so I was like, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm trying to learn fractions. So I, I literally ended up doing a fractions lesson in, in the dirt with a stick, trying to teach Abdul how to add fractions. And it just was this incredible moment where I realized that just the opportunity that I had just because of education and because of the country that I was born in. And part of me wanted to stay there and, and do something to change, but I also realized that I had I guess the intelligence and these abilities where I could actually probably help a whole lot more people if I chose to leave and reskill. And at the time, I, I didn't know a lot about technology, but I knew that technology was getting to the point where it could have an impact on the ability to scale a really good education in, in places like Tanzania that don't have access to good teachers or the not enough great teachers. And so, yeah, I made the decision to leave Tanzania. And I guess the thinking behind that for me was that I could stay here and probably help about 100 people or I could go home uh, and, and transition my skills and maybe help a lot more and have a lot more of an impact with the skills that I do have and the time that I do have to invest. And so I chose to do that. And I love that. And I want to just pause and like reflect on that point. I like to ask myself, how do we create more impact? Because we have limited time, we have limited resources, we have skills that we can repurpose, but how do we, how do we find a way? And maybe we don't know it yet. We need to explore it to create more impact. And people say, well, it's not always more. Well, for those of us who have access to education, it's easier to say that. Yes. But if you can help 10 people who don't have access or 1,000, it's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's not about the scale and I want to like be bigger and be more successful. It has nothing to do with that. But if I can help, again, 10 people or 1,000 who don't have access and I can teach them, I cannot teach them one-to-one, -one, so I need to find a different way to do it. And mm -hmm. I, I love what you said. And I think it's a beautiful question for all of us. Thank you for sharing that. So how did you find your way to Practera? And Practera is in Australia, right? Yes, Practera okay. was in Australia. So I came back to Australia knowing what I wanted to do, which was to work out a way to make more of an impact, um, knowing that technology would probably have a role in that, but also knowing that good design also plays a role in that. Uh, and so I actually started out uh, trying to shift from teaching uh, and having a, I guess, reputation as being a, a university adjunct professor to being an instructional designer. And that, again, was a very emerging field at the time. And so I, I just, my, my thinking was if I can get a contract job as an instructional designer for a few months, then I'll have the title to say I've done, I've, officially been an instructional designer and then maybe somebody will employ me as an instructional designer and I can do this thing that I probably was doing all along to be honest because I was designing experiences I just didn't know the name of it 
yeah, so I, I did that. I did three months uh, working as a contract instructional designer for the, uh, the New South Wales government, which is a state in Australia that I'm from. And then I found an instructional design position in a technology company uh, that turned out to be Practera. Okay, I like this three-month experience because it is experiential learning. Yes. It has experiential learning all over it. <laughs> and I like that you thought about it. Okay, I want to get there. I don't have any of that in my previous you know, uh, qualifications, certifications, and experience. So how do I shortcut, not shortcut, but how do I get in there, mm. get enough experience for someone to say, yes, you can do that. For those who are not familiar with Practera, Tell us what is Practera doing? So Practera is um, a, a company and a technology in one, uh, but we genuinely believe that the best way that humans learn is through experience, but you can't just have the experience. You have to know how to extract or be supported through the process of extracting the learning out of the experience. And so we have been working towards, uh, for the last six years that I've been at Practera, designing the, our technology. Um, we call it an experiential learning platform. So it's an LMS, in essence, that's been designed specifically for experiential learning. What is LMS? Learning management system. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, it's specifically designed to support experiential learning. So for me... As an educator, when I just naturally teach using this experiential learning pedagogy, transitioning that into the online or technology-supported experience was very difficult because the technology wasn't designed to support the way that I taught. It was designed to support teacher standing in front of the classroom pushing learning content to students. That's what most LMSs were designed for because that's how learning happened at the time. Well, the majority of learning happened at the time. So when they built those, those technologies, they were mimicking the way learning was happening, whereas I didn't teach that way. And so I felt very restricted by the technology. And so it was amazing to be able to be a part of actually building a technology underneath this pedagogy that I loved and believed in so much. Uh, as a part of the team at Proterra and, and really being a, a, a test dummy <laughs> of, of the technology. In Australia, the problem that we were trying to solve and where collaborative project learning came from was uh, there wasn't enough internships and opportunities for students to get practice while they were in university. So they were really heading out into the workforce unprepared. And so what we were trying to work out is, was, is there a model, a different model that is like an internship, but it's scalable? <laughs> Again, the, the scalability of impact is, is very, uh, a very big theme in my life. But how do we enable these experiences to be available for more students more frequently so that they leave university better prepared? And so collaborative project learning really came out of, um, out of that. That was kind of our solution to that problem. And instead of one student doing an internship, it was teams of students working on a project together. So they were delivering a project, but then they were also navigating working in a team, uh, engaging a sponsor or a client and keeping them engaged in the process, having to actually explicitly manage a project because they were doing it in a team as opposed to just implicitly managing the project themselves because they're the only one doing it. Uh, so it, it enabled them, more students, to get, to get access to these experiences, um, but it also enabled the development of a lot more skills. Let's talk about skills, and especially now we're talking about 21st century technology, uh, more complex problems we have to deal with, and a lot of other things. Talk to us about the skills that students uh, develop during experiential learning. I, I think that every student is unique, uh, and they will develop. I guess if you don't design what you want them to develop, 
they will develop what they have the capacity to develop or what they're motivated to develop and take from the experience. But I think that with with good design of the experience, you can actually design really great learning outcomes and structure the experience to make sure that all of the students get a lot more skills out of the experience. So I think really simply they can learn how to actually apply their technical skills or the theory that they're learning in in the real world and see how it comes to life. I think in an experiential learning experience that has a real industry engagement opportunity, they can learn how to bring all those skills together because I think in a lot of ways in the classroom, we learn all those skills individually and in isolation from each other. And so you learn marketing and you learn management and you learn finance. And whereas an experiential learning experience, you might have to solve a marketing problem by looking at a budget and getting more experienced people on board. So you're using all the skills together to solve the problem. And I think experiential learning is a great way to bring all the skills together. But I think it is also very good for developing the 21st century skills that are more focused on competencies like critical thinking, problem solving, communication skills. And I think if you structure them right and really build reflective elements in, I think they can also develop a person's character as well. But I don't think that that happens by happenstance. I think that happens with intentional effort. Okay, let's talk about the design because experiential learning We can all think about different experiences and different ways and projects, project-based opportunities. Mm -hmm. Talk to us a little bit more about how at Practera and like overall, uh, based on what you know, how do we actually design the best or the most adequate learning experience for a student or for a group of students? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I... There is a theory, and I'm happy to share with you some links uh, to this so that you can share it, Uh, but there's a a design theory called constructive alignment. And the basic uh, premise of that theory is that you have to know what you want the students to learn, which coming as an entrepreneur, like it's, it's, it really is tracks towards how to start a new project and deliver it into the world. You have to have a vision, right? So you have to have a vision. You you don't just create an experience and throw them in and it's, well, you can do that. It doesn't often go so well, but, you know, you have to know what you want the students to learn. Uh, And so we have a program that I I was part of designing uh, that the goal of the program was to learn innovation and teamwork skills. So then you have to decide, okay, well, if that's what I want them to learn, how do I measure that? How do I give them an experience where they're going to have to demonstrate those skills in an experience? So in that uh, innovation program, we basically gave the students a problem and they stepped through the Lean Launchpad process to deliver a solution to that problem. So we were thinking about what what was the thing that they needed to get out the bottom <laughs> And then how do we how do we give them a process and step them through that process so they're going to get that outcome? And then you go, okay, after you've got all that, what what is the learning that what are the what is the knowledge that they need to be able to go through this process? And then you put the maybe they need to know what Lean Launchpad is and they need to know what technology-driven innovation is. And so you put that learning content around the experience so that they have that to fall back on and to support them through the process. All this design and development of the program you talked about, do you do that like uh, on your like by yourself at Practera or do you also engage educators and people who I call them a little bit experts or they have expert knowledge about that? How, how does it work? So um, if I'm familiar with the subject area, I, of, I can often know the content as well as I guess the structure, but I have had to design learning programs before where I was not a content expert. And so that's when you can leverage industry people to understand what really happens out out in the industry. So right now, for example, I'm designing programs for material engineers. I don't know a lot about that, but I um, 
know how to ask great questions of people that do know about that so that I can work out what it is that students would actually do when they get out in the real world so we can design an experience for them to practice that while they're still at university. Okay, so what you're talking about as design the experience, it's like a framework, step by step, that you would usually follow in real life Yes. if you were in this role, whether it's material engineering or marketing or innovation or something else. And these are like, I think of them as like different programs Yes. that you have a framework or a curriculum around it. I think there is a layer under that, which is like the specific projects. Do I, do I think of that correctly? How does it work? Yeah, so we, we like to call those structure. So for example, uh, stepping through the innovation, the lean launchpad process, for us, we used to refer to that as a chassis. You yeah. know, if you look at the exam analogy of a car, uh, there's a chassis or chassis, I don't know how you say it here. Um, uh, and then the car on the outside looks very different, but that underpinning mechanics and, and the structure is, is very similar. So it doesn't matter what problem you give the students in that lean launchpad process, they're going to step through that process to solve any problem. It's the same process. Uh, so we've, we've developed an innovation framework. We developed one around design thinking. We developed one around um, structured problem solving, which is a common consulting framework. We've developed a really basic one around project management and just delivering a project. And so we tried to build all these programs so that it didn't matter what project you put in the top. They stepped through the process and got an outcome. How does the business model work? Who are the people who are um, covering the costs? Are these the educators in higher ed? Yeah, so uh, it works a little bit differently in the different places that we are. But in Australia, we work directly with the universities and they offer these programs that we've built to their students and then our team manage that process using the technology. So just in February, I believe that we had 2,000 students all around Australia participating in that program, in one of our programs. Um, and I think that was managed by about five people because the technology underpins it and, and mimic, like basically structures the process for the students. Okay. And are they working on different projects? Yes. Who defines this project? How long do they last? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so the structure is the same. So they're all working on their project for three weeks. Uh, but what they're working on and the nature of the project itself is dependent on who their client is. And their client is a real industry professional that has a real life project for them to work on. So we have as much as we've structured the student experience uh, through the course of iterating the development of these programs, we know what type of projects work and what projects that the students can do really well. And so we offer, offer a lot of advice to the clients, to the industry people that want to participate in the program, which types of projects work really well um, for different levels of students. So, you know, if they're a, if they're a sophomore, they're probably not going to be able to do a full-scale consulting engagement, whereas if they're an MBA student, they might be better at that. So we've gotten really good at knowing what projects are suited for what types of students, uh, and we put the right projects in the right programs. Okay. Tell us a little bit more about the behind the scenes, the technology, <laughs> and how, you know, how are you figuring out who to map with and how to do that? Look, I think a lot of it initially has been following our nose uh, with, oh, we just saw that project didn't go so well, maybe what was wrong? And I think it's that question of why did it not go, go so well? Is it because we didn't support effectively? Is there something we could have done? Or was the project actually not the right level or the right um, level of complexity or whatever for that particular group of students like should have been placed elsewhere so we're always trying to work out why it didn't uh, go wrong uh, why it went wrong I should say yeah. and what we can do to it and so it might be oh that there was too much to cover in the period of time so we could have used this project but it really should have been three projects not one and so we're always 
kind of were analyzing. And then we also look at the feedback from the industry partners. So part of one of the key features of Practera is that the client is actually involved in the technology as well. We have a user type that we've designed specifically for them. So you get all their feedback through the platform. And when you have thousands of students and thousands of projects going on, you can look at which clients were happy with the students' work and then dig into why, like, was it because, and look at, was the project too hard? Was it, was the client grading to expectations too high? So you can start looking at all of that data. Mm -hmm. I want to take one example because I understand here there is this, there are students, the learners, mm -hmm. who are the ultimate beneficiaries of all that. We're trying to basically help them build skills and be ready when they when they join, you know, the real world. Mm -hmm. There are the educators who are responsible for the curriculum and, and education, and then there are the industry partners that they yeah. have a problem that they need help. What are the steps? Who who comes to you first and says, "I need a project." What are the steps? Um, I actually really don't know who's, who, who is first. Um, I think it was the problem ultimately was that we weren't doing this collaboratively. Stud students had needs, industry people who had projects that they needed done. And, and I guess when you look at the big picture of this conversation um, around, I guess, talent and the future of work and future of learning, Academics have an opinion on who is responsible for developing professional and 21st century skills. Industry is saying, like a lot of industry people and a lot of the data is saying that the students are not prepared when to work when they leave university. And so it's a really convoluted conversation, but there didn't appear to be a lot of action of, okay, what, what can we do to solve the problem? And so I think what we tried to do is go, okay, how do we bring everybody together and develop an ecosystem that really does support this problem. Because at the end of the day, that's really what we built. If the students are the primary driver, the industry partners don't get enough out of it to sustain uh, and consistently contribute and be a part of the ecosystem. And then if they're not a part of the ecosystem, you're spending lots of time and money going out and finding new people. And so there really needs to be enough value in it for all of the stakeholders in order to create a, I guess, a circle of life ecosystem. And now, I mean, in Australia, we have students that participated in the program that are now clients because they've gone out into industry, they've gotten a job, and they realize and remember the experience that they had in this program in 2015 when we first started it, and now they want to give back. And, you know, we've taken that recently to another level where we, we have, I think it's two or three students now that uh, now work on our team. And they're now the program managers for these programs and they're able to offer this opportunity that they had to a whole host of students because they've, uh, they're now a part of the ecosystem in that way. Mm -hmm. So the project managers uh, have a role, like I would think, like a project manager in every other company? Yeah, the pro program managers. Program managers, so, yeah. Yes. So uh, we have a program manager in each state in Australia, uh, and then I run those programs here in, in the US because uh, we're just getting started here. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so the they're responsible for working with all the different universities in their state and uh, offering these types of programs to the universities in their state. But they they facilitate, they recruit their industry partners, they work with the universities to recruit the students, they put all the students in teams, get the industry partners to put appropriate projects in, and then they, the technology helps them uh, look at everything that's happening while everybody's in the experience using the data dashboard on the platform. Uh, and then they, uh, they, I guess, celebrate at the end when everybody has a great experience, hopefully. Let's say I'm an educator mm -hmm. and I want my students to learn more about uh, marketing communication. Mm -hmm. So I come to you and, I, you know, and I, I want to work with you to find the right program and then the right industry projects and partners and put them together. Can you talk to us about how does this work? How does this actually happen in real life? 
Yeah, I think um, it depends where that person is when they're having that I need help moment. Okay. Uh, so some educators are doing this work already and they are using Excel spreadsheets and pivot tables and email and Google Docs and their learning management system and all these crazy, yeah. lots, like a basically a palaver of technology to try and do this one thing. Yeah. Uh, it's labor intensive, uh, it can be difficult and it's very time consuming, but they're really passionate about it. So when someone like that finds us, usually it's a sigh of relief. Oh my gosh, I can do all this with one thing. Uh, and so really what happens with that is they've already designed the learning experience. We're just basically putting the technology underneath it to support them. But then in on the other side, there there's a lot of people that don't already teach in this way, but know that they need to. And so in that regard, it really starts with the design first, uh, because I like to think of experiential learning, like the easiest way to think about the difference between more of a traditional learning classroom type course and an experiential one is you think about the task first. So I think when you're doing a class for students, you go, what, what, what information did they need to know? Whereas, and then we design the learning, uh, what we're going to teach around that. Whereas the question that I ask is, what do they need to be able to do in the world? And then how do we structure from that place? Uh, how do we get them to do that thing so that they have a practice of it? And then how do we support them with learning content so that they do that thing well or to the best of their ability? Very good. I like these two examples. So there are, let's say, two different groups with different needs yeah. because they are, they are at a different stage of their experiential learning mm-hmm. yeah, practice. Yeah, absolutely. Very nice. Another thing that I noticed when I did my uh, my research is that uh, you have the learners, the students, you have the educators, and you also have mentors. Mm-hmm. Are these the industry partners or uh, do you have a different group of people whose role is to be mentors? So that actually depends. Uh, so the mentor user type in the system can be uh, be an industry partner in some cases. But what we did learn through initially starting designing these experiential learning experiences and trying to make them more accessible for students with less experience, what we actually did was introduce a, a mentor role into the mix. So if somebody is doing an MBA and they're in the final subject of their MBA, they probably have professional experience. They may not necessarily need, like they're going to know how to do a lot of that engagement into the real world. Whereas if you're a a second year, like a sophomore student and you're having to do an industry experience or do a project for an industry partner, you may not know those little things like how to effectively keep a sponsor in the loop with what you're doing and sending a calendar invite when you agree to have a meeting. So we actually introduced for those programs that we've designed for the uh, less experienced learners, we actually introduced the mentor. And oftentimes they are alumni of the university. So we uh, recruit alumni that are maybe in the first two or three years out of university to come back and mentor the students and give them, be able to pass on the knowledge that they've learned on the little tips and tricks of how to effectively engage in the real world. So, hey, it's probably not a good idea to show up to um, your meeting late or to not send a calendar invite or um so that powerpoint presentation that you put together have you thought about using the the industry partners logo in it instead of making it pink because their colors are blue so like all of those those little professional skill tips and tricks that's what they're helping out with mm-hmm. you should talk about the reflective learning and you, you mentioned that earlier in our conversation that it's not only what we are learning and the experience, but it's like how much we reflect on what mm-hmm. we learned. Yes. And we all know that because now that we reflect on something that we experienced years ago, we actually get the biggest learnings. Yes. How is this built within the program and the, the process you have? We actually, I guess, try and trigger reflection in the design of the experience. So... A student is living in the moment, they're, you know, stepping through an innovation process and they've just submitted an assignment uh, or submitted their value proposition canvas or something to their client. There's a little window there where they're waiting for feedback. 
Uh, and so we go, okay, what, what a great time to reflect on the teamwork skills that you've learned through this process. And so we don't just get them to reflect on their own teamwork skills by putting a, like a self-assessment in there of their teamwork skills. We actually also get them to give feedback to their peers as well. So that is all available in the technology. So if my understanding of my work is that I did an amazing job, but then my peers or my industry client is saying, actually, you said that you got a five out of five star rating, but I think I would have given that a three. And this is why, this is why, this is the difference. I would have given you a five if you'd done X, Y, Z. I've got feedback that I can practically then apply. So I can consider that feedback reflectively and go, okay, so if, if I wanted to get a five on this, this is what I, I would need to do differently. And the same process with teamwork skills. We often get students that give themselves five out of five on all the teamwork skills, but then they're very pleasantly surprised or maybe not pleasantly when their peers are giving them a two or a three. But what we, we do as part of that process is ask them to give constructive written feedback not just what they did poorly, but an example, okay, why did you give this person this rating, but what could they have done to get a five? Yeah. Is the, are all these programs uh, like 100% online or are they also activities, collaboration, meetings that they happen in person? Yeah, so there's lots of different models. So we have some uh, programs that we run that have live components so that's why I, I like to call them technology enabled. So the technology, you can do the program fully online because a lot of the learning and the structure and all of that is supported by the technology, but you can also do the live components as well. So in a lot of our programs, they have uh, an orientation session that's live and the whole cohort gets together and all the industry partners come and it's a big, exciting event. And then they do work as a team, some of them will do that online and have team meetings online. Others will get together on campus and do it. But the learning content and the structure or the design of the program that they step through is, is enabled by the technology. So when you do need to transition it online, it's actually not that big of a translation which we experienced uh, in February when we had to very quickly switch a blended experience to a fully online experience because we had some of our students that were participating uh, get held back in China because of travel bans as a result of the, the coronavirus outbreak there. So we were able to really quickly rejig the teams. That's really all we had to do was rejig the teams and make sure the industry partners were okay working virtually with their team instead of physically meeting them. That was the only difference we had to make because everything was already online. Let's pause for a second and look at uh, when you started, when you went to Australia first and joined Practera, you, you were thinking that you wanted to create more impact. So you mm -hmm. were thinking a little bit more of like the scalability and the impact of your work. Having been through now the journey for a few years, how do you feel about that? And now also being in the US. Yeah, I think I have been able to make a bigger impact. I think that there is more potential to that. And my personal passion is opening up access in low resource economies. That That's my heart and what I'm very, very passionate about. So I, I would love to be able to take what I've done and what I've learned and, and what I'm doing now and make it accessible at a price that's affordable in a place like Tanzania or South Africa, because South Africa has a 57% unemployment rate of young people. There's a lot of need in that area and, and these programs would really help with that process. So I would, I would, that's what I would love to do. Mm -hmm. And what are the things that uh, need to change or evolve in order to be able to make, let's say, the Practera technology available, you know, in schools in uh, higher ed in Tanzania? Uh, so one of the things that you look at from a technology perspective in, in a low-resource economy is access to data. So if data plans are really expensive, you need to make sure that your technology enables the students to really download different elements of the program when they're on Wi-Fi so that when they're not on Wi-Fi, 
they can still do their work and things like that. And then I think another level of scale in terms of the volume of students that a teacher can support uh, because then it makes it more cost-effective for the, the institution to offer these types of learning experiences. One thing that we have not talked about is that actually you are pursuing your doctorate degree. So yeah. do you want to maybe take a couple of minutes to talk about uh, your, your continuous learning? Yeah, absolutely. So as part of my work at Practera uh, and my, I guess, desire to upskill myself so that I can continue to make an increasing impact, I decided to do my doctorate in education. So I started that in the middle of 2015. So I'm just almost at five years and I'm almost finished, <laughs> which is very exciting. Um, but what I was looking at is, I guess, coming back to that, I think a comment we made a little bit earlier about the technology not really supporting the pedagogy that I practiced. Uh, and what I saw in a lot of technology and, and in the, the emergence of learning analytics uh, and the literature is aligned to this, that there wasn't a lot of aggregation of learning theory and learning analytics. So there was a lot of very smart people doing amazing things with data from MOOCs platforms and other learning platforms, but there wasn't, they weren't really integrating the learning theory uh, into the process and looking at how can learning analytics and learning theory come together to be able to, I guess, build into the technology to even further support the learning experience. And so I basically have spent the last five years working out if that can happen in an experiential learning paradigm. So what can we use data from the students in the platform to identify them into particular learning theory-based categories so that we can give that information to an educator so they have a lot more knowledge about a particular learner when they're going through an experience and then if they do have that information, are they able to use that to provide more effective support? In addition to that, is there any other aspect of uh, experiential learning that you see in the future? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think that I think experiential learning and, and learning how to learn from experience uh, is fundamental to being a lifelong learner. So I as everybody who's listening to this would have seen, I've probably had about three careers already. And that's only been possible because I, I know how to self-direct my own learning and I know how to learn uh, and I know how I best learn. And so I think that as we move into the fourth industrial revolution where the only thing that's constant is change, uh, we have students in universities now that really the job that they're doing in 10 years' time we don't even know and it doesn't exist yet. And so I think that uh, experiential learning will become more lifelong. And I think that, um, that it has experiential learning and, and the use of technology to learn as we're working yeah. is going to be the new thing or the, the emerging thing in, in experiential learning. Mm -hmm. We talked about a lot of things. Is there any topic uh, related to your doctorate or your experience that we we want to close with oh gosh that's a big question <laughs> I think I mean I've spent the last five years as I said working with data uh, and working with aggregating data and, and learning theory and I think one of the we're at a really unique time in history right now with the introduction of AI in education and I guess not to leave on it on a down note, but one of my my concerns about the use of AI in education is accountability for uh, the development of those the AI. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily being done well, and and there isn't a lot of like so for me, for example, what I've built as a part of my doctorate could underpin AI. And a, the development of an AI, but there's no accountability measures for me uh, if I make a mistake or whatever and somebody else builds on top of my thing, there's no way to track it back 
so that we can make the changes. So I think we're in a really important time. And, and I think that if I was to say anything, it would be that educators and learning people really need to engage and lean into that conversation and, and have the, take their seat at the table and uh, because it needs all of the people that understand learning just as much as the people that understand technology to be able to do that collaboratively and together to make sure that we're really building AI that's going to support learners and not um, do other things with them. Beautiful. And that's a great uh, closing comment because uh, I w when you complete your doctorate and you have a little time to breathe, um, I would like you to come back and we can dive in more into the data and all the aspects you talked about and also AI and more specifics about the work, learning and AI and technology and how all this come together. Amazing. That would be great. Thank you. So thank you so much for everything you taught me today and answering all my questions. It was such a pleasure. I loved your journey and uh, thank you so much for, uh, for sharing with us. Anytime. I love it. Always willing to share my story. If you enjoy listening to Impact Learning, please leave us a review on iTunes to help people like you find this podcast. You can also subscribe and never miss an episode. And if you have friends and loved ones who would be interested in this episode, please share it with them. Thank you. And remember, we can talk about learning, we can design it, or we can do both. This is Impact Learning. I'm your host, Maria Zenidou. Till next time.